welcome onto the show author Robert Jacobus, who wrote the book Houston Cougars in the 1960s, Death Threats, The Veer Offense, and The Game of the Century. Just finished reading this thing. What a book it was. And great to have you with me, Robert. I got to ask you, first of all, what made you want to do a book like this? What made you be interested in this material? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. And really, one thing is I am a graduate of the University of Houston, so I've always been a big Cougar fan. And then uh, what kind of got me on this book or project was back in 2006, it was the 40th anniversary of uh, Texas Western winning the NCAA tournament with an all-black starting five when they played Kentucky and Adolph Rupp. You know, I kept hearing story after story after story about that. I kind of knew we had kind of a similar story at the University of Houston. So I started looking into it and I noticed, you know, there's a newspaper article here, things like that, but never a book written on it really in depth. And then also on the football side of it, I knew, uh, you know, Warren McVay, who went to U of H integrated, uh, you know, major colleges in the South. And, you know, most of the publicity through the years have been going to Jerry Levias of uh, SMU. And, but he came when he integrated the Southwest Conference in 66, but that was a year after Warren McVay. Obviously, Levi's accomplishments and Texas Western's accomplishments were quite impressive, but it was like U of H was being ignored. So I decided to just dive into it and see what I can come up with. What jumps out first early in your book, Robert, was the story about NBA Hall of Famer Oscar Robertson coming to play uh, at U of H. He, he came to Houston when he was at Cincinnati and how the fans treated you know, him and the city treated him when he came here. Can you tell that story? Yes, uh, it was when Oscar was a sophomore at University of Cincinnati. Really his first uh, venture to play in the South. When he came to Houston, things were thrown at him. He received uh, you know, racial taunts, things like that. Well, and also uh, when they originally came to Houston, that the team was uh, staying in the Shamrock Hilton. When the owners of the Hilton found out that Oscar was staying there with his white teammates, they made him get up in the middle of the night and move out of there. And I believe he had to go stay over at Texas Southern University. It upset Oscar greatly. And, uh, you know, he wrote about it in his autobiography. And, you know, but this was very common for African-American players when they came into Houston in the 50s and early 60s before U of H integrated. You know, UCLA came in with John Wooden and players like Walt Hazard and like that. You know, they experienced some of the same things. And, you know, there's numerous uh, examples I gave in the book on that. Yeah, the one thing I remember you wrote about the John Wooden deal was that, you know, he he threatened not to come back to Houston. It was so bad when, when Walt Hazard and Fred Slaughter, how they were treated – I believe the the officiating even was was a problem for those kind of guys. But you know they they weren't getting officiated correctly, the, calling a lot of fouls on those guys. Tell that story if you would. Well, what's interesting about that is it depends on who you talk to. What happened was in December of '61, UCLA they played a tournament against the Cougars and a couple other schools at Old Sam Houston Coliseum downtown, and Bruins had uh, Fred Slaughter and Walt Hazard on their team. And it was the first time they'd gone into the South with African-American players. The Cougars uh, beat UCLA very badly, 91-65. When I interviewed you know, several players in UCLA, you know, they talked about the officiating and things like that and how they were singling out Slaughter and Hazard and things like that. But then when I talked to some U of H people, like gentlemen who uh, was still playing for U of H back then, then became their assistant coach, John Schwerock, and then the gentleman who used to be the sports information director at U of H, Ted Nance, they said it was basically sour grapes that U of H used a zone press on them and UCLA couldn't break it. And the Cougars killed them 
in the book, it talks about after that game that night, John Wooden went over to Guy Lewis's house and asked him about the press. And then uh, UCLA started using that. And that's when they started the run of national championships a couple of years later. Yeah, interesting. I want to get to Guy V. Lewis and, and his X's and O's because uh, you make some great points in the book on that. But I tell you what, the, th- the story that really surprised me uh, th- th- to learn about this, that the civil rights, the first civil rights sit-in west of the Mississippi River started at TSU. I, I don't know how many people in Houston realize that. And the guy who played a huge part in that was Marvin Blumenthal. He ended up playing a huge role in UH basketball history, too. And this was also a guy who was friends with Red Arbach. He, it's almost unbelievable that as a lifelong Houston sports fan, I'd never heard of Marvin Blumenthal. Who was he and, and what all did he do? You know, I was just thinking about this this morning before the interview. The two people I would have liked to have actually met in person, but they passed away was for his book was Marvin Blumenthal because he died at a pretty early age in 1969. And then another gentleman by the name of Lloyd Wells, who was a big figure in the uh, African-American community in Houston. But Marvin Blumenthal actually came from the eastern part of the country. And yeah, that's where I knew Red Auerbach from. He played at, I believe it was Temple. After uh, graduation, he uh, moved down to uh, Houston and he started the recreation program at the Jewish Community Center back in 1951. Well, when I interviewed his wife, she said he did it because he wanted to change. You know, he wanted to go somewhere else. But then in the late 50s, he decided to start integrating the Jewish Community Center, which is now the Judson Robinson Center over at Herman Park. Um, it's The building's still there and the gym is still there. I actually went up and looked at it one day. Now the new Jewish Community Center over there on Braisewood, they have a Marvin Blumenthal Center there. And he's his, his uh, big picture of Marvin up on the wall and everything. But uh, he was really the first... Uh, he, you know, he kind of started the integration process in Houston. And then this was two or three years before uh, the Texas Southern students actually uh, did their sit-ins and things like that. And, and when I found this out, I was I was somewhat surprised, too. And this is just something uh, I just kind of stumbled upon. But anybody you talk to from back then, including Elvin Hayes and people like that, you know, they just they just speak the world of Marvin Blumenthal. And, you know, his his name kept coming up in interviews. And so I had to kind of figure, you know, find out you know, a little bit more about him. Yeah, give us some of the names of some of the guys that had played over at the JCC that he, he was having over there that you would just, you know, you might walk in the door, I guess, over there and, and you would see those guys. Well, Lucius Jackson, who uh, eventually became a first round pick in the NBA and players from all over the country would stop in the community center. You know, some people said, uh, you know, Will Chamberlain came in there uh, several times to play. They had summer leagues there and things like that. And I believe Chet Walker came in, uh, you know, just all kinds of players came in there. Kind of like what Fondy, Fondy Recreation Center was later in Houston, years later. As we all know, Guy V. Lewis's two recruits that, that changed Houston Cougar basketball were Elvin Hayes and Don Chaney. But before Guy V. went after Hayes and Chaney, he went after two other prominent basketball recruits. I didn't know this either, and, and this is pretty interesting. Who were those players, Robert? Well, there were two gentlemen he tried to integrate U of H with, but it was just a little bit too early, a couple of years too early. In 1960, I don't know if any Houston sports fans remember McCoy McElmore. He used to do the color commentary on the Rockets games back in the 80s and early 90s. But he was a big star uh, at Yates High School, right across the street from U of H. But this was 1960, and you know Guy Lewis wanted to help integrate U of H, but it just wasn't time yet. And so he asked McCoy McElmore to go off to a junior college. 
and McCoy went off to Moberly Junior College in Missouri. And the coach there was Cotton Simmons, who eventually became an NBA coach for the Phoenix Suns. But after a couple of years there, Macklemore decided to go to uh, Drake University. He became an All-American there, and then he played 10 years in the NBA, uh, mostly with the Milwaukee Bucks. And then a couple of years later, David Latin, who eventually went to Texas Western and helped them win that national championship in 1966, you know, Latin even said himself when I interviewed him, he wanted to go to U of H in the worst way because it was not far from his house. And Guy Lewis wanted him in the worst way. But U of H was about a year away from integrating, and Guy Lewis wanted David Latin to do the same thing, go off to junior college. But Latin decided to go ahead and go the four-year route, and that's what he did. And he ended up at Texas Western and ended up winning a national title. I always thought it would have been interesting to see David Latin and Elvin Hayes and Don Chaney on the same court together for U of H. That would have been uh, pretty awesome. Yeah, that, that would have been something special. And, you know, not only did Guy V integrate the program – but he also changed the way Elvin Hayes thought and the way he looked at the world, right? I mean, Elvin was a guy that, you know, he, he came from this small town. He wasn't around white people where he, where he was. Tell, tell the story about that and, and how, you know, he just changed Elvin's thinking. Yeah, and, and the thing I realized since I didn't really grow up in the South from interviewing people was, you know, it really was two separate worlds, black and white. And most of the time in towns of blacks really did live across the tracks and there was very little contact between blacks and whites in, in most towns in the South. And it was the same way with Elvin A's growing up in Rayville, Louisiana. He had never really had any contact with uh, whites before. And so when he came to U of H in the fall of 64, he had a very difficult uh, adjustment time. He'd always been from what I understand, you know, fairly quiet and things like that. And you know, he had a hard time adapting at first. And in fact, uh, Guy Lewis even called him in his office one day and he asked Elvin, he says, you know, Elvin, you know, why do you hate me? Because, you know, Coach Lewis couldn't figure out why uh, Elvin was kind of, you know, treating him badly. And, you know, but when he asked Elvin that and, you know, he explained things to him and stuff like that, how, how they were in this whole thing together. And he started having Elvin over to the house to eat and things like that. You know, Elvin kind of loosened up a little bit and, uh, you know, Elvin even said, you know, Coach Lewis is so instrumental in his life, you know, help, helping him change, helping him change his way of thinking, things like that. Yeah, Guy V didn't have Don Chaney and Elvin Hayes rooming with each other, which seemed like it would have been the what I think a lot of coaches would have done. He put them with two white players, which was pretty ingenious. A guy named John Tracy roomed with Don Chaney. And I love the story you tell in the book about the night at the dorm. They were listening to the radio, and at that point, they had barely said a word to each other in the first, I guess, few weeks or, you know, first few months that they were living together. Can you set up that scene and explain what happened that night? Yes. Um, and, you know, when I talked to Elvin and Don Chaney, you know, they, they more or less expected when they arrived at U of H in the fall of 64 that they would be rooming together. But Coach Lewis had another plan. Uh, he, he set them both up with white roommates because he thought that would help them uh, assimilate quicker and easier. And Elvin uh, had his white roommate was a gentleman. Uh, he was a student trainer by the name of Howie Lorch. And he was from New York and he'd grown up with blacks and things like that. And so, and, you know, they were a pretty interesting pair. But then with uh, Don and uh, John Tracy, it was uh, that you know, he was from Brooklyn, um, you know, grew up on the streets of Brooklyn. His dad was a cop in Brooklyn. Guy Lewis had gone up there that summer to do some recruiting and he had talked to John Tracy because Tracy had already been there at U of H for a year or two. 
and asked John if he would consider uh, rooming with Don Chaney. And when I asked Coach Lewis, you know, why'd you pick John Tracy? He said, well, you know, he he knew the streets and he knew how to deal with black people. He, he just seemed like the right guy for the for the job. And so Tracy agreed to it. But then when it came time for him to uh, come to Houston together, Don Chaney got there a day or two early and he just stacked his stuff in the corner in their dorm room. And then when Tracy came in uh, later that uh, when the semester was getting ready to start, he noticed all Don's stuff piled in the corner and things like that. You know, Tracy found out later that according to the uh, de facto Jim Crow laws of the day, a black person would never pick which closet they would put their clothes in or which bed they would choose before a white person. That's just the way Don Cheney was raised in Baton Rouge uh, under segregation. And so, uh, you know, I, you know, they eventually got their beds in their closets and stuff like that. But then for about three or four weeks, Cheney wouldn't really say anything to Tracy. All, all John Tracy could get out of Don Cheney was, yup, nope, you know, when he'd ask him a question. And finally, uh, it was, uh, you know, and John Tracy and Don Cheney both told me the same story, is that they're sitting there one Sunday night, you know, listening to the radio, you know, real quiet and everything. John Tracy just started talking to Don Cheney, like, hey, you know, we've been rooming together for a month and you've hardly said anything. And, you know, have I done something wrong or, you know, just trying to find out what the deal is. Don Cheney finally told... Uh, John Tracy says, you know, John, you make some really good points, but the thing you have to understand is, you know, where I grew up in Baton Rouge in the South with segregation, I've never been allowed to talk to a white person without their permission first. And, you know, John Tracy told me he was floored when he heard that. You know, after that, you know, they warmed up uh, to each other and all that, and then they became best friends. And, you know, they're still friends to this day. Uh, you know, 50-something uh, years later, uh, you know, they still talk about once a month or so. They, uh, get together by phone. John's out in Los Angeles. He eventually became a pretty well-known director of TV sitcoms, uh, like Full House and uh, shows like that. Yeah, Full House, Family Matters, New Heart, Laverne and Shirley, Growing Paints. I mean, incredible story there. He, he goes to Hollywood, starts directing TV shows. And, and Tracy, if I remember right, Robert, he, he left U of H. Tell why he left U of H. <laughs> he, he, he knew he had to go, right? Yes, uh, he told me as soon as he saw Don Chaney play, he knew he wasn't going to, uh, Tracy said he knew he wasn't going to get any more playing time. And so he stayed one more year in room with Don. But then after that, he uh, transferred and he eventually ended up in uh, Hollywood and, you know, did very well for himself. Yeah, that's funny. I mean, he, uh, Chaney was the guy that was the reason why he had to go. And one thing you wrote about the U of H fans reaction to, to Elvin Hayes and Don Chaney that said a lot was before they arrived, they were, there were racial slurs directed at African-American Cougar opponents, but the players said uh, those players, you know, Hayes and Cheney said they don't recall racial slurs directed at Hayes and Cheney. I mean, not just Hayes and Cheney's, but the, the actual te the teammates and stuff like that said, they just don't remember that stuff directed at Hayes and Cheney once they started playing there. Yeah. And it's interesting how the attitude kind of changed so quickly as soon as Elvin and Don got on campus, because like you said before that, uh, when opposing African-American players would come into Houston to play, you know, the crowds were rough on them, but it's almost like it changed overnight. And in talking to, uh, you know, for their former teammates, you know, also some of the fans and things like that, I think a lot of it was, you know, U of H was kind of an up and coming school and, you know, U of H has always kind of had always taken kind of a backseat to UT and A&M and, you know, they were willing to do anything to win. It didn't 
matter what color the player was. And, you know, U of H, you know, for many years was kind of a working class university. You know, I did the same thing. You know, I went to, I worked and went to school and got my degrees from U of H and which what a lot of the graduates did. And I think people were so appreciative and, you know, that we were on the map finally. They were very accepting of yeah, the story weaves also in and out between basketball and football, and, and I want to get over to Bill Yeoman and, and what he did for the Houston Cougar football program. Remind people, where was the Houston Cougar football program when Bill Yeoman took over as the head coach? Well, they had kind of been mired in mediocrity until Yeoman took over in 1962. You know, he knew there was a pretty big talent gap. Uh, yeah, he was facing. And, you know, U of H also, just like the basketball team, U of H would play teams that had African-American players on it, you know, teams from the West Coast, like Washington State and Oregon, people like that. And Yeoman, uh, like I said, he knew he needed a talent upgrade. And uh, there is the story in the book where early on, Bill Yeoman, he met with some of the black leaders of Houston, you know, businessmen, clergy people. Uh, there was a gentleman I talk about in the book. His name is Quentin Meese. You know, he was one of the local leaders of the NAACP in uh, Houston, and he was at a meeting, I believe it was at Shamrock Hilton one night, and Coach Yeoman has told me this story several times, and he said, you know, he got up and said in front of all these uh, gentlemen, he said, I'm prejudiced, and he said they all got a look in their eye like, you know, what? And he says, I'm prejudiced against bad football players, <laughs> and so Yeoman knew he needed a talent upgrade. He decided he was going to recruit the best athlete possible, and he came from Michigan State which you know, was one of the leaders as far as integrating programs and assimilating African-American players you know, and, and students. And when he came down here, uh, you know, he, he told me also, he says, you know, he, was, he was too stupid to realize that people had a problem down here with race. And you know, he just wanted to recruit football players. You know, and he, he didn't think along the terms of black and white. He just thought, you know, hey, I, I need a good football player. It doesn't matter what color they were. And I talked to a lot of Yeoman's assistant coaches back then well like uh, chuck fairbanks uh, bum phillips who was on the staff for a couple of years and you know they said coach yeoman didn't see color when they would look at films of players or recruit it didn't matter you know so coach yeoman pretty much changed the thinking down in this part of the country as far as uh, getting the best athlete available yeoman is most known for creating the veer offense uh, which football players can still see in the read option game today uh, why did he create the Veer offense? Mostly, from what I understand, and I'm not an expert on X's and O's in football, but when they were playing these teams like Ole Miss and Alabama, the Cougars were playing a lot of SEC teams back then. You know, U of H had small players on the off offensive line, and a lot of times they were not able to block these uh, defensive tackles and from Alabama and schools like that. And so... Um, they started using the Veer offense because it, it changed the blocking schemes and things like that. And it, more, it relied more on speed in the option game, which was something that, that they could control because, uh, you know, eventually when they started recruiting African-American players, you know, speed was, was the big uh, uh, advantage for U of H when they would go play some of these schools. The player who integrated Yeoman's program was Warren McVay. The, the recruiting process to get him was not easy at all. Other schools pulled out all the stops for McVeigh, Robert. What were these other schools doing to get McVeigh, and, and how did Bill Yeoman pull it off? It was very much a surprise when Yeoman did pull it off. For example, uh, one of the schools Warren really thought about going to was uh, University of Missouri because uh, another uh, great player from Texas, uh, Johnny Rowland, who had played for Corpus Christi Miller back in 1960, he'd gone up there, and a lot of the 
black players from Texas uh, idolized Johnny Rowland. And uh, I, I know Missouri, uh, they had Harry Truman write Warren a letter trying to get him to go there since Truman was from Missouri. Uh, when he went out to UCLA for a recruiting trip, they used Jackie Robinson, uh, Rayford Johnson, you know, the great decathlete and everything. And um, you know, pretty much schools uh, you know, did whatever they could to try to get him to, to come there, including some uh, under the table things, illegal things, which, you know, those things happened back then, just like they do today. But yes, it was very much a surprise that uh, Warren ended up at Houston. The thing Coach Yeoman talked about with that is, and Warren, Warren said it too, is, you know, Warren was a mama's boy and he didn't want to go far from his mother. And, you know, he's from San Antonio and, you know, Houston, just 200 miles down the road, the closest major university to uh, San Antonio was, you know, UT, but they hadn't integrated yet. And UT did show some interest in Warren McVeigh, but at, in the end, they decided not to recruit him. U of H was really the, the uh, largest major college that was close to him. And like I said, he wanted to be close to his mother. So that, that was a big factor. And then I also mentioned in the book, it was a collaborative effort by a lot of people in Houston, you know, a couple of the assistant coaches like Chuck Fairbanks, you know, the sports information director, Ted Nance, Lloyd Wells, who I mentioned earlier, you know, leader in the black community, Don Schwarak, the gentleman who became the U of H assistant basketball coach, you know, he, he became good friends with Warren and everything. So it was just kind of a, it's just all kind of fell into place and it's so much different back then than it is today. Recruiting wise, you know, recruiting wise, now people, they commit a year early and I think they're going to have an early signing period now for high school players, football, but uh, Warren didn't sign his letter of intent until July, you know, not long before the school year started. And I asked Warren, I said, why'd you wait so late? And he said, well, he just hadn't made a decision yet. And, uh, but you know, he decided to go to U of H and what a lot of people don't realize is Warren was the top recruit in the whole country. Every college wanted him. You know, back in the day, uh, once Yeoman came along, U of H really did get some exceptional athletes. Some of those teams that McVeigh played on U of H, they, they had eight, nine guys go to the pros uh, back then in the 60s and early 70s. Yeoman really did change the face of uh, college football around here, starting with Warren McVeigh. Yeah, and Yeoman out-recruiting Harry Truman is, is kind of a big story, I guess. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> He tried to recruit a guy who would have become the first black quarterback in the South. He also was a pretty darn good high school pitcher in baseball. Robert, who was that guy? What happened when they took him to the Astrodome? Because I think that's a good part of the story. And, and why didn't Yeoman get him? Well, the gentleman you're talking about is uh, Vita Blue, who uh, eventually in 1971 became the Cy Young and uh, most valuable player. Uh, for the Oakland A's, and I believe he won 24 games that year, and you know, and he became a you know won over 200 games in the majors. You know, most people around our age remember Vita Blue. You know, he was from uh, Northern Louisiana, I believe he's from Minden, Louisiana. Turns out he was a heck of a high school quarterback. Also, well, when I interviewed Vita, he said football is probably his better sport. I believe he accounted for about 5,000 yards of offense in about 10 or 11 games his uh, senior year. He uh, came down to U of H, a recruiting trip. Uh, Vita told me his first time he'd ever been on an airplane. They took him over to the Astrodome because back then, I think it was 1966 or 67, the Astrodome was a big recruiting tool because, you know, dome stadiums were a brand new concept. Vita, uh, when he went to the dome, uh, from what I understand, he uh, stood out on the mound, uh, pitcher's mound, and he looked out, you know, beyond the 
center field fence and he made the comment something like, you know, maybe someday I'll I'll be playing here. And he really was all set to come to U of H and um, be their first black quarterback in the South, you know, run the beer offense with people like Warren McVay and Paul Gibson. You can picture a backfield like those three guys. But then uh, not long before that, his father passed away. There was an offer on the table from Oakland Athletics. I believe it was a $5,000 bonus. And Vita's family needed the money. And so he decided to go the baseball route. And in the end, it, uh, it turned out well for him. Uh, you know, Vita told me, you know, he ended up with his health and two good knees and things like that. But he told me he always kind of wondered, it, you know, he, he would have liked to have given football a shot maybe. Uh, but in the end, it, it worked out pretty well for him. Yeah, just a history-changing moment right there. And, and also a history-changing moment was that opening game of the 65 season in football. McVay played in the first college football game in the Astrodome, the first college football game in an indoor stadium, and in the first time the Cougars ever played in front of a national audience. But all of that nearly overshadowed, as you talked about in the book, the importance of what was going on from a social standpoint. Explain the significance of that game and Warren McVay, not just to U of H, but to college football in the South. You know, it was a big day. It was uh, September of 1965, and Cougars' opponent was University of Tulsa, and it was the first game in the Astrodome, first football game in the Astrodome. The Astros had already played baseball there earlier that year. You know, it was uh, really the first time uh, at a major college in the South an African-American player was taking the field. But if you look at newspaper accounts and talking to players and fans, Well, in fact, the two uh, gentlemen who uh, called the game on the radio were two Hall of Fame baseball announcers, Harry Callis and Gene Elston. I did get to interview both of those guys, and they both said they didn't really realize it, that Warren was the first. And to them, it was kind of just another football game. And Gene Elston said he didn't make any mention of it on the radio or anything like that. But it was very significant. Unfortunately, Warren's first game did not live up to the hype. People thought he was going to be the second coming of Red Grange. And Warren did end up having a good career at U of H, but it's the first game in the Dome. He fumbled four times, uh, gained 21 yards rushing on 11 carries, and basically just you know had a very bad game. Now, Tulsa had a good team, uh, but and Tulsa ended up winning 14 to nothing. And part of the problem for McVay was, some Houston fans might remember this, but the first year in the Astrodome, they did have natural grass in the field. Problem was they had to replace it eventually because they found out in early in the baseball season, uh, this is before they painted the top of the dome, the window panes, because uh, outfielders were losing the ball in the sun. And so they painted over it. And once they painted over the, the panes of glass in the ceiling of the dome, the, all the grass died. And so when they played in September on that field, I mean, all the grass was dead. And they literally went out there because the game was on national television. They went out there with green paint and just basically painted it on, uh, on the field and Warren could never get his footing that day it was a very bad experience and you know the first half of Warren's sophomore year you know he just really didn't produce that much but then he did play another very significant game in the middle of the season when the University of Mississippi came into the dome and it was the first time they'd played against a black player and Warren it was kind of his coming out party he caught touchdown passes of 84 and 80 yards against Ole Miss and the Cougars beat him for the first time in their history. And then from then on, you know, Warren had a pretty good career. He got, got nicked up with a few injuries his senior year, but, uh, you know, but for the most part had a good career at U of H and U of H won a lot of games when Warren was here. Yeah. Leading it from that game in, in Mississippi coming to, to U of H later on in 1967, the Cougars basically integrated the state of Mississippi with their games at Ole Miss and Mississippi state that year. And 
when they played Ole Miss in Oxford, there were death threats for Warren McVay leading up to the game. Two or three plays during that game explain how concerned Warren McVay was, and it literally affected the outcome, didn't it, Robert? Yes, and this was probably the one story when I talked to people and things like that. I just, you know, I just couldn't fathom something like this happening. On back-to-back weekends in October of 1967, uh, U of H went to play Mississippi State in Starkville, and then the next week they went to Oxford to play Ole Miss. You know, by then, Warren had other African-American teammates. Uh, His first year in 1965, he was the only black player on the field most of the time. But a couple years later, his senior year, he had some help or some other black players. And um, he uh, was getting death threats when they were going to go to Ole Miss. You know, Coach Yeoman had received word and things like that. One of the threats was uh, if Warren was going in for a touchdown, he was going to be shot. As it turns out, couple, three times in the game, and I, you know, I've read the newspaper accounts of this, and you know, well, and Coach Yeoman told me this story, is that a uh, couple times uh, Warren looked like he might be in the clear to run for a touchdown, and he was caught from behind by an Ole Miss defensive back. And if you know anything about Warren McVay, he was a world-class sprinter, and once he got out in front of somebody, nobody was going to catch him. And then there was another time in the second quarter of that game against Ole Miss, from what I've read, once again, from the newspaper accounts and what people told me, you know, he, he went through a gaping hole in the line and he was going to run for about a 50, 60 yard touchdown. And all of a sudden, after about 10 or 15 yards, he just flat fell down. There was nobody within 10 yards of him. Coach Yeoman asked Warren a couple, three weeks after the game, you know, what the deal was. And, and Warren told coach that, hey, you know, I was afraid that if I was out in the open field like that, you know, they could shoot me. And uh, he, he said, if I'd have been on the goal line where a bunch of players were grouped together, he probably would have tried to score. And the thing is, uh, you know, the Cougars lost that game 14 to 13. I actually got to interview a fan that went to the game, you know, drove all night and went there. And he said they were sitting up in the stands and they were wondering why in the heck Warren kept falling down. You know, and they couldn't believe it. But then, you know, word, word of this story started getting out through the years and everything. And then they realized, you know, what the deal was. But you, know, you talk about uh, discrimination and racism playing a role in a football game, you know, as a prime example. Yeah, that was just uh, that just summed it all up about as well as you could about how scary it was at that point. And just that I think the line that you had in the book, you just mentioned was, you know, he, he even thought if I score in a crowd, I'm okay near the goal line, but out in the open field, he felt vulnerable. And that's just an amazing thing to hear from a, from a football player. And, and it really speaks to what was going on. I want to switch gears with you back to basketball in the game of the century, because of course that's a big part of your book and U of H versus UCLA at the Astrodome remind people kind of what the chain of events were that actually led to this game. And, and Guy V, again, playing a major role in this. Guy V. Lewis did come up with the idea for the game of the century. If people don't remember, realize there weren't around then. It was when, uh, on January 20th, 1968, which the 50th anniversary would be coming up this coming January, when uh, number one UCLA, led by Lou Alcindor, we know him as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, They'd won 47 straight games. Uh, they were playing the number two team in the country, you know, University of Houston with Elvin Hayes and Don Chaney. You know, they'd met in the Final Four the year before UCLA had beaten them. But Guy Lewis laid the groundwork two years before when uh, he started putting the word out that he would like to play UCLA. He uh, started thinking like the Astrodome was a possibility because, well, back then, U of H did not have Hawkeye's Pavilion yet. You know, they were playing their uh, home games at Del Mar Stadium over there off of 290. But he, uh, Lewis thought that if they could get UCLA to come to town with uh, 
Alcindor and, you know, Mike Warren and Lynn Shackelford and you know, all their high school All-Americans, you know, they could get a good crowd for. And so Guy Lewis kept bugging the athletic director, Harry Falk, to, you know, maybe do this thing and all that. And eventually Falk kind of gave in and he talked to the uh, UCLA athletic director. John Wooden finally gave his approval. Uh, Wooden did not like to play games off campus, but he did. Uh, he realized that the game could be good for basketball, you know, get a lot of publicity. And so, uh, you know, they decided that they were going to play January 68 non-conference game. And it was like the perfect storm that came along. You know, when the two teams met, they were undefeated. You had the two best players in college basketball, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Elvin Hayes. You had the largest crowd in basketball history up to that point, you know, 52,693 fans. And it was the first nationally televised uh, regular season basketball game in college history. The game came down to the wire, and, and Elvin Hayes had the game of his life, 39 points and 15 rebounds, and he made the two free throws at the end of the game to win the game for U of H. And it laid it laid the foundation for what we know as the March Madness today because it showed that large crowds would come out to watch a basketball game. You know, it's one of the reasons we have the Final Four in these big uh, stadiums now, arenas. You know, it's very significant. It's kind of like what the culmination of uh, Guy Lewis and – recruiting black athletes, it's kind of what everything led up to was that moment. And by that time, four of the five U of H starters on that team were African-American. But it was, uh, you know, people I talked to said it was just, you know, the greatest sporting event they'd ever been to. Yeah, a couple of things I, I think that would surprise people that they may not know that you talk about. And when I read the book, and again, I, I definitely recommend people go get this book because there's so many really great stories and great information all the way through it. But the floor from the Los Angeles Sports Arena was shipped to the Astrodome. So UCLA had somewhat of an advantage over Houston because they'd played three games on the court earlier in the season. That court also turned out to be the same one used when UCLA and Houston played each other in the Final Four later that season. And you also had players talking about, this was great, they were talking about, talking about being winded, just running out to the court at the Astrodome because of how much farther it was than the usual court. What else uh, comes to mind from that game of the century, just just from the atmosphere and stuff that happened during the game that you think surprised you as you were doing the research on this? You mentioned the part about the players getting winded. They set the court up pretty much in the middle of the dome where second base would be, and the teams had to enter. Those of you who remember the dome, they had to enter from center field. I remember Vern Lewis, Guy Lewis's son, who was playing on the team, you know, he told me that by the time he – they jogged out to the court to warm up. He was already winded. And uh, a gentleman for UCLA, when I interviewed him, uh, one of their uh, bench players, Bill Sweet, he said he told me the same story, basically. You know, people I've talked to, you know, they talked about how the noise in the dome was just deafening. Uh, well, I remember uh, Howie Lorch, the uh, student manager, the one who was Elvin Hayes' roommate, Elvin's freshman year. He said when they opened those center field gates uh, to go out to the court, he said he said he felt like it was the Roman gladiators going out for battle, you know, with, with 52,000 people there. There was never anything like it before, not even close. I want to say the next largest crowd ever in NCAA history up to that point was like 22,000. So you know, this shattered all the records of attendance and all that. I did interview one gentleman, and uh, they used to sell programs when they used to play the home games over at Del Mar, and they might sell 1,000 programs you know, for, for uh, like 50 cents each. But then he said when they got to the Dome that night, they had uh, like 10 or 15,000 programs to sell. And the guy and this gentleman I interviewed, he said, he said, this is stupid. We're never going to sell that many programs. And he said they sold them out in about an hour. 
<laughs> and because, uh, you know, they didn't realize that the crowd was going to be that big. So, like I said, you know, it was just where everything just came together. You know, it's something you could somewhat plan for, but, you know, great events a lot of times aren't really planned. They just kind of come together, you know, with the undefeated teams and the great players and the jam in the dome. You know, I, I don't know if we ever see anything like it again. And unfortunately, the Cougars, they end up getting smashed by UCLA later that season in the semifinal game. Three th- things jump out as you look back at that game, though. One, the game was pretty much a home game for the Bruins. It was in Los Angeles. We talked about the, co- the court situations as a court that, that they had played on. Two, the Cougs were held to their lowest shooting percentage in seven years, which uh, says something about uh, the Cougars. But you got to credit UCLA's defense, of course. Three, they lost one of their key starters right before the NCAA tournament. This this might be a little bit lost in history, and I, I'm glad you brought that up. His name was George Reynolds. How important was he, and, and what happened with George Reynolds? George uh, Reynolds came along in the 1967-68 year, the year of the game of the century, and they recruited him out of a junior college in California. The name escapes me at the moment. Uh, he's originally from New Jersey, and I tried to track George down to interview him. I thought I had him a couple of times, but he's been kind of elusive trying to talk to. But um, you know, he was he was the point guard from what I've read and you know, I've watched films of the game of the century. He and Don Chaney were the backcourt and UCLA had uh, a great backcourt also with uh, Mike Warren and Lucius Allen. Our two guys, Reynolds and Chaney, could keep up with those two and guard them and things like that. Well, right before the NCAA tournament, turns out there was a controversy over some of uh, George Reynolds' transfer hours from junior college, and he was declared ineligible because he didn't have enough hours, something along those lines. And so he's ineligible for the NCAA tournament. Well, Guy Lewis's son, uh, Vern Lewis, stepped into the point guard role, and Vern did a you know Vern did a good job, but defensively he just wasn't there with George Reynolds. So you know that was somewhat of a factor in the Cougars losing. You know, they did lose 101 to 69. Some people have admitted that. But from what I've, well, I've from reading uh, John Wooden and talking to people, when UCLA won the rematch game in the Final Four, John Wooden said that was probably the best game that his UCLA team's ever played. You know, it, they were just lights out. It's just, it's just one of those things. UCLA had high praise, though, for, for Reynolds after, that, after the game of the century and said he – I think he was a guy that might have surprised him a little bit when they played him, wasn't expecting him to be as good defensively. You know, it's one of those things with Guy V. Everybody talks about the X's and O's with Guy V. And, and I'm glad you, you sort of outlined in the book and, and got people talking about what kind of X's and O's Guy, guy V was. Tell people a little bit about him as, as a strategist. Well, and Guy V was, was an X's and O guy. And, uh, you know, a lot of people through the years thought, guy would just roll the balls out of practice and you know and they would you know just kind of do whatever but uh coach lewis's assistant coach harvey pate you know, he was his assistant for many years he played basketball for hank iba at, at oklahoma state and you know basketball fans know that hank iba was you know huge on defense and things like that and then uh, when don schwerak came along in the late 60s became assistant coach in the 70s and 80s um you know he, he was real big on defense and doing drills and things like that and so, you know, yeah, Guy Lewis sometimes gets, gets a bad rap uh, about not knowing a lot of X's and O's. But like I mentioned earlier, John Wooden got his own press from Guy Lewis, um, you know, after that game in 1961 where the Cougars beat UCLA at Sam Houston Coliseum. So, yeah, and hopefully uh, the book helped dispel some of those myths about uh, 
Todd Lewis not being an X's and O's kind of guy. A couple of people that you've interviewed for the book have, have passed away. You, you, you got to feel fortunate that in the timing uh, of, of you doing the research from that book, uh, who, who all have we lost since you had a chance to talk to him a few years ago? Well, one of the gentlemen I just mentioned a few minutes ago, you know, Coach Lewis's assistant coach, Harvey Pate, uh, you know, he passed away uh, about a year or two after I interviewed him. You know, I talked to him three or four times. He's a great guy to talk to. You know, unfortunately, you know, Coach Lewis passed away. It'll be a couple of years coming up here. You know, I've gone through uh, and looked at some of the names of people. Uh, uh, well, Walt Hazard from UCLA passed away. You know, the list keeps getting longer because uh, I did a lot of the interviews back in 2008, 2009, 2010. And, you know, a lot of those guys are pushing 70, 80 years old now. You know, unfortunately, we're losing them. You know, I have a second book in the works, which hopefully will be out next year. And a lot of the people I interviewed for that book have passed away already. And because, you know, it's talking to more some pe- people back from that time period and everything. You know, unfortunately, you know, I, I hear about these gentlemen passing away. And it's, you know, kind of I'm kind of glad I got the interviews in when I did. Yeah, but sometimes I wish I'd started earlier with some of these interviews like 10, 15 years ago, because a lot of these gentlemen would have still been around, which I could have talked to. But uh but, you know, it's just part of the business. Yeah, you mentioned uh, earlier also Harry Callis. And of course, who, who would have known that his son, Todd Callis, uh, you know, he's now the broadcaster for the Houston Astros. Yeah, that's right. Well, and then, you know, Gene Elston passed away, too. So, uh, like I said, we've lost a lot of them, unfortunately. Well, let's see. Well, Bum Phillips, uh, Chuck Fairbanks, who was uh, one of Coach Yeoman's assistants, you know, eventually became the coach at Oklahoma and then New England Patriots. In fact, I want to say I probably interviewed four or five or six of Yeoman's assistant coaches, and I believe they've all passed away. You know, obviously, Coach Yeoman's still around. He's going to be 90 this year. He's still doing well. Yeah, it's just, like I said, it's unfortunate. Do you think people would be surprised around the country at how important University of Houston, how important they were, the whole program, the athletic program was to integration and, and athletics in this area? Because I don't know if it's as widely known maybe around the United States. I mean, I think we have an idea here what those guys did, but I, I don't know if you talk to national people, if they would say, oh, U of H, is a, a, that's a program that I think of when I think of integration and, and how the importance it played in the South during that period. Going back to the start of the interview today, and th- that is one of the reasons I wrote the book is because to me, U of H has never really gotten the credit you know, pretty much uh, most people know the Texas Western story, you know, beating Kentucky and uh, Jerry Levi's integrating the Southwest Conference. But, yeah, on a national scale, a lot of people really don't know about U of H. And, you know, what a lot of people don't realize, I know U of H has been trying to get back into a, you know, a major conference and things like that. But, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, you know, U of H played some pretty major college athletics, like I said you know, football team played uh, probably half their schedule was, you know, Houston was independent back in the 60s, and half their schedule was against Southeast Conference teams. And, you know, basketball, you know, they always played a great schedule that in being independent. You know, U of H was on the map 30, 40, 50 years ago. Um, you know, when Southwest Conference broke up in 1995, U of H kind of got left behind, and we're, we're, we're trying to catch up, and uh, um, hope, hopefully it'll happen eventually. A lot of people don't realize that U of H used to play some pretty big-time athletics. Uh, integrating the football and basketball program w- was a big reason for that. So much great information in this book, Robert. Houston Cougars in the 1960s, death threats, the Veer offense in the game of the century. Uh, go out there, pick it up. People people can still order it. You can find it. In, I, I saw it still in the bookstores, right, Robert? People, Plenty of places for people to go uh, go find it. 
Yes, sir. Uh, it's in all the Barnes and Nobles here in Houston, plus the independent bookstores, uh, River Oaks, Blue Willow, Brazos Bookstore. They all carry it. It's, it's on Amazon. You, uh, my publisher, Texas A&M University Press, which I thought was kind of crazy that the Aggies would publish a book about the Cougars, but um, it's on their website. In, in fact, in July, uh, I'll be up at the Texas Sports Hall of Fame. They're having their first annual book festival for sports books, and I'm going to be there, I believe it's July 15th, doing a book signing, and some other authors are going to be there. Well, Mel Renfro, the Cowboys, are going to be there signing his book, things like that. So that's an event coming up. Yeah, lots of great stories in this thing, and it's, it's something that I, I think if you're a Houston sports fan, you should know about this. If you're a Coug alum, this is a, a must for you, and uh, can't thank you enough for joining us, Robert, and telling some of the stories from this book and going out there and, and getting this information for people because it's, I think it's important. Thank you for having me on, Robert. I appreciate it. For more interviews, subscribe to Houston Sports Talk on iTunes, or if you're an Android user, download our free Houston Sports Talk app in the Google Play Store. We're also available on Stitcher or the TuneIn app, and our website is HoustonSportsTalk.net. Dot net.